Our passage this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 1. I thought it was fitting after Christmas, after such a grand celebration, even celebrating Christmas on the Lord's Day, thinking about the incarnation of the Christ, Jesus coming to be God with us. I thought it's fitting for us to think about what we do next. How do we live in this new year in a new way? And so as we gather together, there's a few points of context I'll highlight. I think we begin this new year thinking about, well, what we always think about, right? New Year's resolutions. What are we going to change about our life? Every year we all contemplate those things that are important, those things that are essential and those things that need to go. We think about developing maybe new habits or changing our routines. Maybe there's something particularly catching or intoxicating about a new beginning. Even the scriptures give homage to this, do they not? Think about that wonderful promise from the book of Lamentations that God's mercies are new every morning. I could have just said that they're continuing, that they're the same. They are the same promises. It's the same mercy, but it's new. We love novelty. In particular, I think we love making ourselves new or Reinventing ourselves, to put it in the vernacular. But is this the best approach? Is this biblical? Shall we as Christians strive for recreating ourselves in the image of something? Or is this this just the futile attempt of the world? Is this really the downfall of Adam and Eve at play over and over again? Let's think about what Christmas has taught us. Did it not teach us that we can't help ourselves? Did it not teach us that God had to break into the world and set things right again? Did it not teach us that we need a power outside of ourselves and our deadness to come in and to make us alive again? Did it not teach us that we will forever be broken and fragmented in this world until we're made whole with the gospel? I think this is the wisdom from Paul in our passage today. For Timothy, Paul's young apprentice, hope did not mean reinvention, but rather going back to the heart of the gospel, going back to the basics of Jesus. As Paul left this world, his dying testimony to Timothy was not for a new resolution, but rather a new commitment to an old resolution. That's where we pick up our text this morning. I'll begin reading for us in verse 3 of chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, 
but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. When I was a young man, I started many things that I eventually didn't finish. You might say that I'm a New Year's resolution junkie. Several times I attempted to start learning karate, just as my older brother had. You see, I adored and admired my older brother. Naturally, I loved the things, or at least wanted to love the things that he loved. I never got very far into my study of the martial arts, and if you were to study my fighting form, not that we need to fight, you'd probably see that I'm not a very good fighter. But even to this day, I still remember some of those early Forms or what the Japanese and the martial art of karate call katas. Simply a Japanese word that means pattern or form. Every one starts out in a certain way. And you have certain forms. I won't continue on. But they believe that the student must learn and commit to memory and develop and master all of these basic forms And that that is the foundation of any good fighting technique. These forms are the knowledge of masters passed down for century upon century upon century. And one of the masters in the early 20th century in Okinawa said that this collected wisdom of our ancestors is like a map. And as such, we must never change or tamper with it. Think about that commitment and that devotion. We must never change or tamper with it. Unfortunately, I never mastered any of those forms, thus my poor fighting abilities. I didn't really possess the knowledge and make it my own. I gave up karate long ago. You see, this is where our passage begins. This is Paul's first point in the first part of our passage. He talks about the historic transmission of the faith down through the ages. He begins in verse 3, notice, by proclaiming that everything he does, everything that he is, and everything that he will tell Timothy is just as his ancestors did. Paul's not simply maintaining that Christianity is passed down from generation to generation. He's also claiming that the gospel revealed in Christ Jesus is intimately and organically connected to the Old Testament. 
Jesus is not simply the Christ of the New Testament. He's the Christ of all of the Scriptures. He is the Messiah. Paul is making the argument against the Jewish establishment of his day. They'd miss the Messiah. They'd miss the Savior and even crucified Him, put Him to death. Now we know this was all for the sake of fulfilling the Scriptures, fulfilling what the prophets had foretold. But he gently reminds Timothy that their religion is the true and historic salvation being worked out by Yahweh, the God of ancient Israel. It's the same story. It's not a new story. It's not a new revelation from God. It's still the same old gospel story. Paul then gives a very candid encouragement to Timothy, his young apprentice, I think because he's writing these words from Rome. He's in prison. This is his second imprisonment. This is also his last imprisonment. He'd been completely abandoned at his trial. No one stood with him. At this point in prison, he was all alone, he says, except for Luke, who was with him. And nearing the end of his life, I think Paul is writing those things that a father would pass down to a child. It's no wonder that he begins to talk about the faith. Verse 5, Paul comments about the sincerity of Timothy's faith, how it brings joy to his heart. Even how he remembers that that sincere faith is the same faith that ministered unto himself. How Timothy, with his tears, had loved Paul, had met his earthly needs. We see that from this that our faith needs to be sincere. Our faith needs to be authentic. Beyond this, Paul then highlights it's not simply the beauty of a family that makes church and faith the priority. You notice he talks about his grandmother, Lois, his mother, Eunice. It's more than this. Paul stresses that the faith he is sure is also Timothy's faith. It demonstrates that our faith must be our own. Not simply sincere and authentic, a part of a group experience, but our faith must be our own. We must have a personal relationship with the Savior. That's why Paul immediately reminds Timothy to fan that gift into a flame, that beautiful language. That's why Paul displayed the reality of Timothy's faith when he laid on his hands at his ordination. I wonder, do you have that kind of faith? Do you have a personal relationship with the Savior? Not simply a relationship in the midst of a body, but a personal and abiding and intimate communion and fellowship with Christ. We all intuitively know that the faith of our parents, the faith of our family name or legacy will get us nowhere. Each morning when we look in the mirror, we're brought anew to that man or woman whose sin has forced God to enter into the world yet again. Every Christmas we celebrate this. We're the reason why Christ had to come into this world to die 
a sinner's death. It's our sin. You and I, we are the reason why Christ had to come. But isn't it amazing? I don't use that word lightly. Isn't it amazing that his coming, even because of our sin, was not a vindictive act? That's how beautiful the gospel is. It's wonderful that the God who has to come in and fix our mess still wants a relationship with us. This same Jesus wants to know you and me. How do we discern whether or not we truly know him? Not like my superficial knowledge of karate. But a deep and abiding relationship with Christ. Well, Paul gives us a clue in verse 7, thankfully. He maintains that God gives Christians, those who know Christ, a spirit not of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. So I ask you this question then. What kind of spirit do you have? Do you have a spirit of fear? An anxious spirit? I don't mean do you struggle with worries and doubts. I think we all wrestle with that kind of anxiety to one degree or another at some point in our life. But in general, is the whole of your life characterized by a spirit of fear of what will happen next? of who you are in the midst of this crazy world? Or do you have one of power and of love and of self-control? I think before we begin to import meaning into those words, we have a whole host of words that we could use to describe what power and love and self-control are all about. But let's move on now to the second part of our passage. Paul begins to instruct Timothy on how someone is to guard that deposit. How someone is to maintain that faith. He begins to unpack what it means to have a spirit of power and love and self-control. He writes in verse 8, To be not ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of Paul, his prisoner, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. First, I think we see that the spirit of power and love and self-control is one that is not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. The spirit that is in a Christian is one that is not ashamed of Christ, our namesake. We must not be ashamed of the Scriptures and all that they teach. Those things are one and the same. Christ is the Word. Second, we must also not be a people who are ashamed of our fellow laborers. This one's probably a lot harder, especially if we've been Christians all of our lives. We know a lot about each other. We know how prone we are to inflict harm and pain on one another. And yet Paul commends Timothy, this young man in ministry, continue on and do not be ashamed of your fellow brothers and sisters. 
That spirit of power and love and self-control is not one that seeks to be domineering over the body. It's not one that seeks to be manipulative. Not one that seeks to be vindictive. But one that can forgive 70 times 7. One that can absorb and assume the cost of what it means to be in relationship with a sinful person. Our sin is costly. My sin is costly. You ever thought about it that way? The longer that I'm here serving you, the more likely it is that I will hurt you. That I will do something acting in my sinful nature that will hurt you. Because I'm a sinner and I'm not perfect. And the faith of the Christian, the spirit dwelling within you, must be willing to say, it's okay, I forgive you. Because I am forgiven much. That is a high calling. A holy calling, as we will see. But lastly, that person must also share in the suffering for the gospel. But probably the most important thing to remember in all of these things is that little rejoinder that Paul gives by the power of God. Do not be ashamed of the testimony, nor of me. Share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. This is natural, right? Isn't this how we are saved in the first place? It's obvious that we're, we're saved exclusively by the power of God, at least initially. We see that as clear as day in Scripture. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you're dead. But God, being rich in His mercy, with the great love with which He loved us, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our sin. I think about it this way. I don't have very many children in the room this morning. But every child knows, at least now in 2017, we've had a good Christmas, we've been playing with our gifts all week, and every child knows there's one major epic parenting fail that you could commit. And that is to get that beautiful new toy, that shiny drone that we've been eyeing all year, and forget the batteries. We've probably all made that mistake at some point or another. Have this wonderful toy, and you can't use it. You can't play with it on Christmas. Oh, the shame. That's a bit like the Christian life. You see, we must have power to work. And that's a bit like being made alive on a infinitely smaller level. God must place the battery of faith within us. Otherwise, we're just a useless toy. We're dead. We're unable to do anything or to bring any enjoyment or glory in this life without God making us alive in Christ. But Paul's point beyond this is that just because we have the power of the Spirit within us, just because we have a battery of faith placed within us, so to speak, doesn't instantly make us a different toy. We have a design. We're created in the image of God. 
And God gives us a holy calling. Every Christian has this calling. Paul's just outlined it. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of one another. And be prepared to suffer for the gospel's sake. That naturally leads us to the question, why would any one of us be willing to suffer? Why should we suffer? Paul tells us exactly why. Look with me at verse 10. He goes on to say that we've been given this holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of purpose and grace in Christ Jesus, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul's not a glutton for punishment. He's not someone who's blindly following a mistaken cause. He understands very clearly that the power of God has been revealed before all the world from all ages in this person, in Jesus of Nazareth, in his suffering and death, in his resurrection and his ascension. And do we understand this? Again, truly, deep down, do we know this? You know, one of the top resolutions at New Year's is always getting in shape. Or the flip side of that, you might say, is joining a gym. We all want to look good. Or we're even willing to, to suffer for that in a gym. At least I think going to a gym is suffering. Maybe you don't, but that's okay. But did you hear what Paul just said? Jesus abolished death. Think about that. Jesus brought life. The power of God is manifested in him in this way. He has brought immortality to light through the gospel. Are you ravaged by the fear of death? Are you completely beside yourself in the grief of a loved one? Do you want a new body? Would you really like to understand where the fountain of youth is? To get eternal youth? It's interesting what the top resolution from last calendar year was. I would imagine this year as well, just kind of given the current trend of narcissism in our culture, but that... That resolution last year, the top number one, was to live life to the fullest. That seems great on the surface. But what is meant by that, of course, is living life for yourself to the fullest. That's really what our culture means, isn't it? It's not just live life to the fullest in general. We're completely enthralled with this idea that this life is the only life we have. So we need to make it count. There's a bit of truth to that. But it completely ignores what Paul is saying. It completely ignores this power of God that's been manifested now in Christ. I'm convinced. That's why our generation loves to go to parties. Why we live for the weekend. 
We simply wait for vacations to come around to enjoy life. Why we only work in order to retire. The Apostle Paul shoots this right in the heart. Don't miss it. He says that Jesus Christ has brought immortality to light in the gospel. If you're sitting here this morning, it means that we have no excuse for not understanding there is more to life than this life. You're a precious creation. You're made in the image of God Almighty. He's always intended us to live forever. The difference is whether we will live with Him forever in peace or without Him in suffering. And the difference is up to you. Paul says in verse 12, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He then gives Timothy some practical last bit of application in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I submit to you this morning, that's the most important New Year's resolution any of us could make. It's to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. But I think what we need to see is, like I said in the beginning, that's not really a new resolution. That's a new commitment to an old resolution. Paul is recounted to Timothy time and time again in 1 Timothy. He'll do it continually throughout 2 Timothy. Back to the teaching. Keep the faith. It's about the sound doctrine, the right teaching, the gospel that was delivered to me which I've passed on to you. It's all about the sound words of the Scriptures. It's kind of like those forms and patterns that I began to tell you about in the beginning. The different katas of karate. Only there's a very big difference. You see, in that ancient uh, Eastern way of life, it was really more than just a system of martial arts. It was intimately connected to their religion. Those Vedic religions all taught something called Dharma. Dharma was to keep or to guard. It was a path or a way of righteousness. And all of them were built on that foundation. These sayings that had been passed down, keeping them, guarding them, Unfortunately, the big difference is that all of that philosophy is based on cultivating qigong. It's really just cultivating chi or your life force. Looking inward. Cultivating your inner self. Bringing your spirit out within you. Constantly maintaining, guarding, tweaking, finessing your life force. The problem is, none of us are able to do that perfectly. 
That's a New Year's resolution that is waiting to fail. The best masters of all time were never perfect in keeping and maintaining those forms. But the beauty of Christ, the beauty of Christianity, is that God gives us His Holy Spirit. He gives us the life force. And even beyond that, the difference between Christianity and all other religions in the world is that it's not up to you. The deposit that you're guarding, the thing that you're watching after, the sound words that you're keeping is that He is able to guard you and not the other way around. We don't have to perfectly maintain our faith in order to be saved. The only thing we have to perfectly maintain is our belief that He will guard us, that He will maintain us, that He will save us, no matter the darkness that dwells within. God is able to guard His deposit, the Holy Spirit who lives within you. That's the good news of the Gospel. That's the resolution to which we should devote ourselves this year. And I'll end with this. I love that imagery. Fan to flame. The gift of God within you. The Holy Spirit. How do we do that? You ever stoked a fire? I love fires. I love building a fire. I love stoking a fire. I love maintaining a fire. Let me tell you how not to stoke a fire. If, I were to, if there was a fire right here in front of me, if I were to do this, wouldn't be very good. Stoking a fire is all about intentionality, singular focus, consistent air pressure. Even with the smallest breath, you can stoke a fire. You can fan it into a wild flame. It's all about maintaining focus on one point, continuing that air pressure. Blowing it, fanning it into a flame. That's the Christian life. We don't have to do all of these things. Paul says, follow the sound words. Devote yourself to the teaching of the Scriptures. You will grow in Christ. That's what we're to do. That's what we're to guard. We're to guard our love for the Scriptures, our devotion unto them, our study of them are cultivating that life of faith within us. That's our singular focus. That's our devotion. May we all do that this year to the glory of God.